we do have to start thinking about it as building blocks of what we're building today, what the digital world is all about. And I don't think we're quite doing that right now. We're just hoping for the best, you know, crossing our fingers. And we're not really considering that these are the roads and bridges. And right now they're maintained, you know, this, this famous XKCD comic was like this whole sort of elaborate structure. And there's like the tiny piece at the bottom that holds everything up. And the legend is this piece is maintained by one developer on their own time in Nebraska. And I think we have to acknowledge that this is a problem. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sentry. Build better software faster, diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code. Over 1 million developers and 68,000 organizations already use Sentry. That number includes us. Here's the absolute easiest way to try Sentry right now. You don't have to do anything. Just go to try.sentry-demo.com. That is an open sandbox with data that refreshes every time you refresh or every 10 minutes, something like that. But long story short, that's the easiest way to try Sentry right now. No installation, no whatsoever. That dashboard is the exact dashboard we see every time we log into Sentry. And of course, our listeners get a deal. They get the team plan for free for three months. All you got to do is go to Sentry.io and use the code changelog when you sign up. Again, Sentry.io and use the code changelog. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. Join in on the hijinks at jsparty.fm slash community. It's totally free. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at jspartyfm. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for delivering you our episodes super fast all around the world. Check them out at fastly.com. All right, here we go. Hey, it's party time, y'all. people welcome to a very special and extra informative show with a stunning panel we have with us today for us welcome yeah thanks it's great to be here yeah we've missed you you've been like busy teaching web security to undergrads at stanford or something what's going on like we haven't we haven't seen you in a while yeah um, it was a pretty busy time but hopefully be back on the show a little bit more this year yeah, we're very excited. And also congratulations on your recent engagement. I had to call you out on that. You know it. So really happy for you both. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. Yeah. Thank you, Emma. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, your fiance is a surprise guest on the show. Did you? No, I'm just kidding. We're not. <laughs> no, but really, we're, we're so happy for you. And we're so happy that we'll uh, be seeing more of you again this year. And with us on the panel as well today is our resident open source, I would say, like, I don't even know. I, I was going to say open source curmudgeon, but I don't know if that's appropriate. So <laughs> is it? <laughs> I prefer to think of myself as a generalist curmudgeon. <laughs> okay. Generalist curmudgeon. There we go. <laughs> Chris Hiller. Welcome, Chris. And our very special guest today is Toby Langel. Good job. Did, did I do a good job? Yeah. Yeah. Spot on. All right. Awesome. So uh, Toby is, I don't even know if I can do a justice for introducing Toby. Um, so he's just a long time, I would say, 
advocate and expert within open source uh, ecosystems. Um, he really gets, I don't know what open governance means. Uh, he's helped some really large scale open source projects land in foundations. He runs a consultancy helping various organizations kind of, you know, adapt um, open source within open source strategies and, and whatnot. So I, I don't know, but Toby, I'm not doing you any justice. So in your own words, why don't you introduce yourself and tell folks a little bit about yourself? Well, I mean, originally, I'm actually a JavaScript developer, just saying. Oh, yeah, that too. That's my background. Yeah. So, you know, given the name of the show, I think I should mention that. But it was a long time ago. It was before jQuery was um, famous. <laughs> that dates me. So essentially, I'm now in an industry that grew like really quickly. I am uh, essentially experienced. So I, I guess that's uh, that's my title at this point, and which is a nice way of saying uh, old. <laughs> That's really cool. And we've invited you on today's show um, to really kind of help us unpack some things that have affected many, many of our projects recently. So uh, there was an incident within the open source ecosystem, uh, specifically the JavaScript ecosystem, a few weeks ago where there was a maintainer that was doing some things to their packages and it really affected like a lot of downstream consumers. So without doing a bad version of telling the story, Toby, can you just walk us through like what happened and then we'll get into trying to unpack some of the fallout. Okay, so I'm going to try to do my best to do a short version of that, especially because I wasn't super interested about exactly what happened in that specific instance because like these issues have become like fairly common at this point. But essentially what happened, well, there are different ways of looking at the story. You can look at the backstory or just what happened recently. So essentially what happened recently is a number of dependencies that people were relying on in general, like deep down in the dependency tree, essentially got sabotaged by uh, their owner. And I, I, you know, I want to put quotes around, around the term. And that was backed with sort of a, a call to arms of um, making open source more sustainable and, and paying developers. And regardless of whether that's actually uh, specifically true and an alleged claim in that particular case, and that's debatable, right? And then people can have opinions about this. This is still something that I believe is really critical that we start addressing in, in the ecosystem. And also that we start like really seeing the impact Right. And the impact here was very real. It was very colorful. It also could have been like very bad. And we're kind of lucky, as you know, my perspective, that like the only thing that happened here was what happened. Essentially, a bunch of like gibberish in uh, logs and some dosing of apps as they were being deployed, which is bad. Right. But it's fairly possible. I mean, at least, like, let's say that if someone was actually wanting to do something very, like, much worse than that, they probably wouldn't be, you know, talking openly about it on Twitter. To me, at least, we have to look at it as a wake-up call, right, of, hey, look at how this whole thing is working. Look at all of what we're taking for granted. And frankly, like, is it really secure? Is it really safe? Is it sustainable? And, you know, the answer to that at this point are kind of obvious. Yeah, I mean, thank you for that really wonderful summary. I mean, just for our listeners, like we're not here to kind of like really poo-poo over like the specifics of what happened, you know, um, in terms of like this developer did this exact thing. I think for us, what's I think the wider takeaway for today is really 
you know, this is just one of many potential things, but also it was literally also one of many things that happened with the same developer over a short period of time. And so like, how do we kind of like unpack that and react to some clear vulnerabilities in our processes, in our systems, you know, and in our just even like knowledge base as engineers, right? Like there's a lot of gaps here and we hope to kind of discuss some of that. And I'm really, really excited to also have just kind of a wonderful panel of people to discuss this with, because even though Toby's our guest today, Faraz and Chris are both pretty seasoned open source developers and maintainers of a fairly widely adopted projects. So Faraz and Chris, like I'm eager to hear from both of you as well. Thoughts on the kind of context for what happened. Yeah, I mean, I'll just second what Toby said. I think we've been super lucky with the types of attacks that we've seen so far. It could be much worse than what we saw in this particular attack. I think we're starting to see these kinds of supply chain attacks happen on a much more regular basis. It's sort of picked up in 2021, and it's it hasn't really let go since. I think I see like a headline about something like this like every two weeks, it seems like, sometimes even more frequently. And if you look at the kind of packages that are being affected, there are all these pretty headline-grabbing um, numbers in terms of downloads. So the two packages in this incident were Faker, which has 10 million downloads a month, and Color, which has 100 million downloads a month. But we've also seen attacks against UA Parser JS and Koa, and as well as um, RC. And all of those packages had at least 30 million downloads a month each when malware makes it into one of these packages through whatever mechanism, you know, in this case, it happened to be the maintainer themselves who added the malware. In the case of, you know, the three I just mentioned, UAParser.js, Koa, and RC, those ones were actually a third party who got access to the modules and added malware to them. In all of these cases, I feel like the attacks have been pretty naive and caught pretty quickly. We're not really looking at like super sophisticated actors here. In the case of um, Faker and Color, it was a very obvious, like uh, you know, it was very obvious that that something had happened because the the packages were outputting gibberish code, infinite loops, sort of outputting the Unicode uh, text to sort of a you know, it was very obvious that something had happened to the package. And then in the case of um, the three I mentioned um, earlier, all of those were pretty obvious as well. They were crypto miners added to the modules. So you know, when you updated, you know, your CPU usage would just go straight to 100%, and it would be mining crypto for the attacker. And so you know, this isn't like a super sophisticated thing. It's it sort of gets caught within within a couple of days. Someone notices get, the malware gets removed from NPM, and then you know we write a bunch of news stories about it and people talk about it. There have been hints at like much more scary attacks. Um, if you go back to 2018 with EventStream, the EventStream incident was a much more sophisticated bit of obfuscated code added to one of Dominic Tarr's packages when. Uh, he you know, gave up the package to another maintainer to take over after he was done working on it. And in that case, that was um, an attack that targeted one very specific company. And uh, it was a no-op for everybody else. And so that went undetected for much, much longer. I just think it's interesting that we haven't seen anything like that sophisticated since 2018, which makes me think either um, people just have forgotten <laughs> that those things exist, or maybe we're just not finding them, which is the much scarier thought. Do you have a perspective on that? Because I'm kind of curious about this. I feel like, given how fragile the whole ecosystem feels, I'm very surprised that there was a, not a lot more going on than what's going on right now. So people, like, genuinely, just in general, really good, and, like, this doesn't happen? <laughs> or do we have, like, sufficient layers that it doesn't happen that much? Or is lots of things happening that we're just not aware of? That's a great question. I mean, one thing is that the attacks against NPM packages aren't very sneaky, 
because once you publish a version, it you know it gets replicated into all these other red, you know registries that people have. Everyone is is sort of replicating npm to their Mir mirroring. Yeah. Mirroring, yeah, exactly. And so it's not like you're going to get away with it. Really, eventually, it's going to be discovered. And so there's there's an element of that. And then I also do think that you're right that most people are good. I mean, we're talking about most people who um, who write open source are doing it for good reasons. Um, they get into it for good reasons for one reason or another. And so it's it's pretty rare that they want to try to do something bad. Um, it's more I feel like external actors coming in and trying to get access to people's packages. But yeah, I don't know. It's an open question. <laughs> I wonder what other people think. For me, like honestly, like this fragility of our ecosystem, just purely in terms of like the fact that like there are packages on npm that are downloaded millions of times a week, but they don't have 2FA or, you know, um, have a single maintainer, like single point of failure in some ways, right? Like what if this person dies and they don't have like a death plan or whatever? And like, what then? Or, you know, for me, like the human element is like always, has always been like the question mark for me around like, like we are like temporal beings, like our resilience is like in community and like in social networks and like, should we be seeing a maintainer of one as a liability? Like, I don't know, like, you know, these are like the types of things that like I worry about, especially for stadium projects. Can you um, please define a stadium project if uh, some of us don't know? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. So stadium projects are like typically one or a small group of maintainers controlling a project that is consumed by many, many people, right? So like React.js is like an, a good example of a stadium project, but React.js has like a team and more importantly, also like a company and like a whole set of processes and all these other things behind them, right? You have lots of examples, especially within the Node community of like stadium projects where, you know, there's like one maintainer or maybe like a maintainer has passed it on to like a group of two people, right? But they, are, they have millions of downstream dependencies. I'm sure like for us and Chris can think of a few right off the top of their heads, like uh, if you all want to, want to share some good examples of that. Does this term come from Nadia's book, Working in Public? Yes. It yeah. does, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think she had like four different projects and we can like link to that in the show notes. And, you know, actually speaking of Nadia, Toby had brought up, I think, in his initial kind of Twitter thread on this that was very interesting that we'll also put in the show notes. But N Nadia kind of talks about open source as like the roads and bridges that like are these invisible things that actually help our entire digital world go around. And so we think about the importance that open source plays in our day-to-day -day lives and interactions with the software that we use on our TVs, phones, et cetera in our airplanes, right? And like, you know, the importance and then like the the actual attention that we pay to it in terms of contribution, resilience, awareness, whatever, the mind share and the importance, they don't really balance and they don't add up. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, on that giant gap, Toby. So that was a great segue, right? Nadia wrote this really important piece in 2017 called The Roads and Bridges. I can't remember what the subtitle was, the unpaid labor behind our digital infrastructure, mm -hmm. I think. I think it's really important that we start thinking about open source and this whole pool of software as the infrastructure to the digital revolution, right? The, the third industrial revolution. In a large part, not only, right, there's the internet, there's a bunch of things, but the open source pool of software is clearly infrastructure, right? And so gave a, a short presentation two days ago on this topic. And I just essentially, this, I was 
really quickly after this original thread. And so I decided to just use the Twitter thread and use that as a deck, right? And so I was missing a title. And I quickly came up with a title that was something along the lines of open source as public infrastructure, uh, it's about time we treat it as such, or something of that nature. And I tweeted that so that I could actually have the title for the first slide of my Twitter deck, right? And like people went like really like it was so tense the responses to that tweet that wasn't supposed to be a tweet, <laughs> you know, it was just I was just using it as sort of a scratch pad, and this really tense culture and really a, a strong difference in perspective between the uh, North America, really, and Europe in terms of what public infrastructure is and whether it's something useful and great and that we sort of like can rely on in our daily life as individuals and as businesses. And, you know, the opposite perspective in the U.S. where it's just like, you know, you think of it as like broken bridges and like potholes mm -hmm. and, and all of that stuff, right? And so there's like a real tension there. But regardless of like like how we're actually thinking of public infrastructure, I don't want to really say like public infrastructure to imply must be owned and operated by the government, right? I really mean it sort of like in a broader, more loose way in terms of like this is what we build our things on today. You know, and I'm not trying to imply like specific solutions that are tied to like more taxes and the government like owning open source, right? Like, <laughs> dun, dun, dun. right? But clearly, we do have to start thinking about it as like building blocks of what we're building today, what the digital world is all about. And I don't think we're quite doing that right now. We're just hoping for the best, you know, crossing our fingers. And we're not really considering that these are the roads and bridges. And right now they're maintained, you know, this, this famous XKCD comic was like this whole sort of like elaborate structure. And there's like the tiny piece at the bottom that sort of like holds everything up, right? And the legend is like, you know, this piece is maintained by like one developer on their own time in Nebraska or something like that, right? And like, I think we have to acknowledge that this is a problem. And it's been a problem for a while, but now that we're actually being impacted, like really impacted by security problems that this is creating, people are starting to pay attention, which is good, right? Because of security problems, we're going to be able to solve what is also sort of like a human problem of people doing work and not being paid for it. So I'm all for that. It's Jared again. Have you heard about our membership program? It's called Changelog++, and it is the best way to directly support our work on JS Party. As a thanks for joining, we give you an ad-free feed, discounts on merch, and even some bonuses like extended episodes. Check it out today at changelog.com slash plus plus. We'd love to have you with us. So Toby, that was a really great point to end on because really you're absolutely right. You know, until we kind of like feel the burn from the fire, you know, usually don't learn, right? However, like we're human beings, right? 
Right. Yeah, exactly. And but for us pointed out, like, this has been happening. This is not new. We like make a little fuss, news articles come out, we move on and forget about it, right? It's like the attention deficit disorder of the internet, like, you know, and just also our complete and utter bias towards just moving forward, right? Like it's it's like somehow we've all embraced the meta mission of like break it and don't think about it and move on. So I'm gonna make the argument that like it's different this time. Okay, I hope so. And I'm not quite sure why, but I think it has to do with the fact that there was a convergence of issues. I think the sustainability drum has of like the, the ecosystem has been like beaten on quite a bit and people have started to pay attention, but they're like, okay, people are not getting paid. This whole thing feels kind of weird and unfair, but what can we do about it? And then there's been sort of like on the other side, sort of like security concerns, right? As Faros was talking about earlier. And suddenly it feels like these two like emerging. Like people are sort of like looking at this and looking at that and saying, oh, wait. The two are related? There's a connection between the two? What? The right and the left belong <laughs> to the same body? Exactly, right? Yes, I get it. And I do sort of like these long threads about, you know, the open source ecosystem like on a regular basis. And they usually get like reasonable traction, mm-hmm. right? This one didn't get a lot of Twitter traction, Mm -hmm. but oh my God, my phone ring, Mm -hmm. right? I had a whole bunch of folks reach out and say, we're still dealing with the log4js, the log4j, sorry, um, thing, and trying to figure out where I'm uh, <laughs> Log4js. Yeah, isn't that a good one? Do not npm install that. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, wait, is that what you're going to say? Don't pin that one on the JavaScript community. We're not responsible for that one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I'm sorry. That, see, it's just like, I don't know what happened there. That's somebody else's crap. <laughs> I think there's another thing, too. It's um, the software bills of material. I don't know what you call it in English. It's BOM, S-B-O-M, mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever the name for that thing is. But the fact that there's been a White House executive order or like document of some sorts, I'm not like, I don't really know what the terms are, <laughs> around security questions, yeah. specifically mentioning open source. What is it called? There was an executive order that the Biden administration put out at the beginning of 2021. Mm about the software build materials. Right. So, yeah, it wasn't that far off okay. on that topic. And then there was a, a, a White House meeting or... Right. I don't know if that happened or what, if it did, what came of it. Yeah. Like, anything to announce? Right. I don't know. So, I mean, I don't know, but there's clearly, like, a convergence of concerns around this topic. And I think the fact that a lot of organizations have started building software bills and materials and they're looking at their stack and they're like, oh, my God, we're pulling in like tens of thousands of dependencies. Like we had no idea that we we're putting in on that stuff. Mm-hmm. I think this has impacted the psyche of folks quite a bit. Right. Mm-hmm. And people are legit like concerned about this. It's like folks suddenly like looked at the shopping bags that they just came home with, you know, or actually take it back. They just looked at the shopping bags that that have been like in their car for the past, like, I don't know, 10, 15 years and just decided, you know what? Let me just take a look at the label and just like, what what are the ingredients in here? What are these clothes made of or whatever? Right. Right. It's like, oh, whoa, you know, wow. I didn't realize there were like so many different kinds of fabric. And oh, guess what? All of these fabrics have different laundry settings. And oh, some of them age like differently oh some of them have their own set of like mini fabrics like right it's like the crazy recursive dependency tree which quite frankly to me we can poo-poo on it all we want but like i think 
open source is working, right? Like open source, like we want people to write less code in the sense that like, I think the statistics, like the last time I checked, at least a couple of years ago, the statistics were around like for every one line of application code a software engineer writes, there's 10 lines of code in their open source dependencies that are running, right? So like that's a really good ratio. People should not see that as a sign of weakness, right? It means that you're focusing on the problems that you need to solve for your specific customers and we're relying on code that's more secure and reused and maintained and you're reducing surface area and we're able to move faster, right? So open source is working, but what's missing I think is, you know, our hygiene around open source and the resilience and our sustainability around open source, like that's where we're failing. So what do we need to do to be more resilient? Like, you know, both on the organizational level, right? For like the Fortune 10 companies, right? But also as individuals that are also using these things, like using these packages or using these libraries, like how do we tackle the this giant sustainability problem that's been like, that's been very under addressed, right? There's lots of questions here. Okay. And one aspect is the sustainability of the ecosystem. The fact that these new issues that we've seen happen sort of like helps make the case for addressing underlying sustainability issues in the ecosystem that folks in the ecosystem are well aware of, but aren't finding good solutions for because it wasn't of broad interest because, well, you know, free stuff that works, who cares, right? Like free stuff that explodes in your face, you're like, oh, well, maybe now we should start looking into it, right? So I think we're moving towards the free stuff that explodes in your face kind of situation right now. So that's a really interesting aspect is to see what we can, how we can leverage this new concern to actually try to find systemic solutions in the ecosystem itself. Mm. And then the other aspect is from the perspective of a consumer of open source software, right? How can we think about our practices differently? How can we think about our interaction with the broader open source ecosystem differently? And then what can we put in place to actually build a more secure and more resilient usage of that open source? Mm -hmm. And so, like, I really sort of, like, see these two different, um, I'm way less, I mean, we have, like, really good experts on the second topic on the show. So, you know, I'm way less of an expert on the security aspects of it. So, I don't know, like, where you'd like to start with this. I'd say, like, I, we definitely need to get into the security aspect of this, like, in this podcast. But I would say maybe we start with the first one, and then we'll work our way, work our way there. Like They're connected, of course, right? Of course, yeah. But they're clearly, like, two distinct. So, I mean... I'm happy to sort of give a quick overview of like the sustainability problems in the space and, and kind of like what we've tried to do. So it's been a while. I think it's really when there was the, the Heartbleed bug that folks really started paying attention to open source sustainability. And there was a bunch of efforts you know, following that and also a bunch of companies actually trying to address the problem. And the problem really is one of... I think the key problem in the open source space, and it's a problem in tech in general, right, is that we all love building new features because like building new features is really cool and that's highly valued both in open source and within companies. But then when it comes to actually like making sure that they stay up to date, that they're sustained and maintained through time, like they're, you know, this is less valued. Right. Just like we value documentation writing less than we value code writing, we value maintaining stuff a lot less than we value new features. 
So I think that's part of what we, has been uncovered for a, a long time. And as a result, you have companies that have built on um, businesses on top of that. Like the famous one, obviously, is Red Hat, right? But that works really well for sort of really well-known software that we interact with. Um, I mean, open source software that we interact with directly. When you look at the whole dependency tree that's behind it, well, you know, the long tail, you can't build like a Red Hat business model for color.js. <laughs> Literally, no one's going to buy this from you. Don't challenge the internet. Well, no, sure. But I mean, we can't do that at scale. There's a, a company called Tidelift that's trying to do that. I think they're even a, a sponsor of uh, JS Party or one of the Changelog podcasts. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's definitely people trying. Yes. They sort of want to like, you know, provide this like blanket guarantee for like all your open source. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's a much harder problem than what Red Hat's doing, that's for sure. Right. And then the other problem that we have here is one of scale. You know, if you're talking about the number that you used before, so, you know, one line of code that you write relies on 10 lines of external code, of open source code, right? And then if you look at sort of like the money that we're talking about in terms of like what's being spent in the open source ecosystem to sort of maintain it, and what's being spent on developers writing code, the discrepancy is mind-boggling, right? I did some back-of-the-envelope math a while back for a talk I was giving on this topic. Back then, Tidelift had announced, I think, a $22 million... Um, Funding round. Thank you. About $1 million of which they were planning to put back in the ecosystem to fund maintainers, right? That's like two, three years ago. We're sort of redistributing roughly around $1 million a year or two, right? And if you do back of, uh, of the envelope math of what the overall envelope for developers in the world is, mm. right? <laughs> There's roughly 20 million developers in the world, roughly. If you look at, you know, like an average salary, you're looking at about a trillion dollar spent on developers per year compared to one or two million dollars on open source. And if you compare that with like one order of magnitude for code and lines of code, you already like you already see the you know how huge that discrepancy is. Mm -hmm. And just to picture what one million dollar means, I actually use a bunch of diagrams in that talk. One million dollar and hundred dollar bills is about like a stack of money that you could fit on your desk. Mm -hmm. uh, like you know, ten million dollars, right? You can fit that on your desk. To get to a trillion dollar, you have to stack the same hundred dollar bills to the size of a skyscraper, like a real skyscraper of hundred dollar bills. That gives you an idea of like the massive difference in spending. Yeah, and of course there are you know lots of companies contributing with uh, engineer time, right? I don't want to discount that at all, and that's actually very important, but. Even though that we have effort in this ecosystem, in our industry, to try to sustain open source, they're completely tiny compared to what's going, you know, to the, what the needs would be. And so yeah. we haven't seen much progress. I would argue it's not just financial, though, Toby. Like, for me, it's actually, like, in terms of mind share and awareness and thinking, like, we don't think much about our roads and bridges, right? We don't think much about the, the open source packages and their packages and their packages and their packages, right? Like specifically even just in our processes, right? Like it, this whole incident that happened with um, Morox packages, you know, Color, JS, and Faker, like they, I think, were one of many other examples, but like it was an example of a clear 
need for better resilience in the way we even consume our packages, right? Because you had folks who were literally having like build failures or whatever, like, shouldn't we have processes that check and gate and make sure that like our builds and our tests and our like our apps still function before like automatically ingesting a new set of dependencies? Like, I, you know, I'm just saying that there's steps there, but, you know, I think even more so the driving factor more often than not is actually on the security front uh, with not just like, have I introduced a bug with this new patch that I didn't really like fully test, you know? So I, I don't know, for us, you maybe want to share some insights on like some security best practices. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll just start by saying that what we're trying to do here is actually pretty crazy problem. I mean, we, basically what's going on is people are downloading code from the internet written by people who they don't know that they've never met <laughs> and they're executing it on their laptops and on their production servers. And they're hoping that that goes well, <laughs> which is when you put it like that, actually, uh, it's mind boggling. It's mind boggling that, yeah, that not only does it mostly work, which is a testament to how good most people are. It's just a lot of trust that people put in. And it, it's sort of like, just people just don't think about that. That's what they're doing very often. It's crazy. It's um, mind-boggling. It's astounding. I don't know what words to use, but we download random code from the internet. We run it on our computers. We don't even bother reading it first most of the time. <laughs> Not that it would help that much, though. And most of the time is like actually like the five nines most of the time, like nine 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 percent of the time. Like yeah, mm -hmm. just like trust. Yeah, and and it's uh, you know it mostly works. The problem is that when it goes wrong, it goes really wrong. I mean. I'm running these NPM modules that I've downloaded and I'm doing it on the same computer where I keep all my tax returns and all of my photos and everything precious to me in my entire life, like my most personal information, and it's running in the same machine. And so there's all sorts of questions that come up around just like, you know, is this really the best way to be doing things? You know, is there not some way to, to sandbox things better? Um, is there not some way to get more certainty about what a package will do before we run it? So there's an infinite number of things we could talk about in this area, I think. There's also people kind of proposing their various solutions. Some people think that code signing is the solution or 2FA is a solution. So there's all kinds of things we could talk about. I think the most interesting thing to think about really here is this idea that modules are pretty opaque right now. And so, you know, even if you want to do the right thing and review the code, it's not really easy to do. This code is open source, like it's open. The word open is there in the name, but like almost no one actually uses that to go and read the code and to go and take responsibility for the code. They just assume that it's going to be fine. And this isn't helped by NPM. I mean, if you go to the NPM website, you'll notice there's this explore tab there that when you click it, it just says this feature is broken or coming soon or something like that. And it doesn't even show you the files <laughs> inside of the NPM package. Right. So you can't even see what you're going to run. You're left to resort to clicking on the GitHub link, going over to GitHub and hoping that the code on GitHub happens to be the same as the code that's on the NPM registry. Mm -hmm. And there's literally no guarantee that that is the case. Yeah, there is no guarantee. That's one of the other chain links that's a little broken in our in our security trust chain. Like, you know, for me, I've always seen that as a major loophole. Like, there's no true secure chain between the contract that between NPM and wherever the code is published, because it's not even required that the code is published on GitHub, first of all. That's also like a fallacy. And then like there's no actual spec or checks or validation to make sure that the code is actually the same as whatever repository is specified in the like package JSON file, right? So like there's a lot of blind trust and like 
giving strangers access to unsandboxed environments with lots of secrets for multi-billion dollar, multi-trillion dollar corporations. Like, you know, like, you know, if your security company doesn't have like a good, like, uh, people's data. Yeah. People's data too. Like, thank you for, yeah. Forget the corporations really. Mm -hmm. Who cares about them? It's actually like people, people that get affected, like when these things happen too. Yeah. I mean, both on, on your machine, right. As a developer, but also when you're pushing that to your app that is hosting data from your clients. Right. Yeah. Chris, I see you making faces. I can't tell if you're like, I, I want to talk. Yes, I do. You're such a polite gentleman, you know, like I just blindly interrupt people all the time. But like, honestly, <laughs> for me, it's like, it's almost uncontrollable. It's like actually a problem. So <laughs> I just want to say I really appreciate your politeness. I really do, Chris. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Right. So I don't want to pull us too far off. So we talking about there's there's no like you got this GitHub repo. You got this package on NPM. You could say that the code you're publishing to NPM comes from this GitHub repo, but you could throw anything in that tarball and upload it to NPM. Of course. Yeah. Some other ecosystems do this, right? I think maybe it's maybe Go does it. And certain Linux distributions have the thing where they don't give you packages. They give you source code and you have to compile it yourself. Is that sort of thing... I mean, yes, it's going to be more inconvenient, slower, what have you. But maybe avoiding registries entirely and going right to the source, pulling down your source and building it yourself is a reasonable strategy to mitigate some of this. Doesn't that require that you actually read the code? Yes. Doesn't that require that we also have hygiene and like actually give some thought to like our dependency tree and how we, you know, like. <laughs> so sure, you could go that far and, and go and read the code. And if you go and you clone, say, any project published to NPM, you go clone, you get a working copy. How that project is built is going to vary. It's going to be different scripts. There's going to be all sorts of different ways to do that. And furthermore, there are all the dependencies that it has as well, right? And so if you were going to do something like that, you would have to <laughs> like go and grab all those dependencies, get the source code, and figure out how to build all those, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can build the project that you wanted to build in the first place. Maybe that makes sense. Certainly some projects don't need to be built. Maybe like more standardization around, okay, this is how you build a JavaScript project. Yeah. This is the command you run mm -hmm. and it will work. It should work. Just an idea, but I mean... You mean standards, Chris? Is this? I mean some standards because we don't have a lot mm -hmm. in terms of the package management. Yeah, no, this has been a huge gap in our ecosystem like for a very long time. I mean, it's like, where do you even start, right? Like, because, you know, there's the context of like node and node adoption and node literally like a very literal hockey stick. Like I have to wonder, like, did all these startup bros get the hockey stick from looking at the node adoption charts? Because <laughs> legit, like it just blew up. And, you know, I don't think anyone was ready for how quickly and how rapidly, but quite frankly, like it spoke to a need as well, because it wasn't just node, right? It wasn't just like the convenience and like simplicity of JavaScript in many ways, but it was also our dependency management system, which I think is absolutely best in class, all software. Like I will argue this with anybody. Like there is nothing easier than NPM install and nothing easier 
asterisk also more unsafe than npx right like install right so so we, we we win we win and i think like part of node's success was like its ecosystem and how easy it was to start like composing and building these blocks you know to create applications or services or whatever really quickly scripts whatever i feel like the speed of how things moved in the server-side world for JavaScript. And then like you had React coming into the equation at some point because like React needs like a whole like marching band of tools in order to like actually compile, <laughs> right? So they were like, uh, sorry y'all, Bauer's not gonna cut it. We gotta use some more tooling here. We gotta go server-side, you know? So then you had this like front-end ecosystem just kind of like massively come onto NPM as well, right? So that's another like thing that happened so quickly that we never really thought about, like, is this the best thing? How should we be handling this? Right. So like, I'm just saying like, there's a lot of the speed of the internet is like a thing and standards are slow because they are thoughtful processes, you know? And so it's like push pull, but anyways, we're going to take a break. There's so much to discuss and unpack here. We're going to compose ourselves, argue about how we want to spend our last 20 minutes and then we'll be back. Practical AI is a weekly podcast that's making artificial intelligence practical, productive, and accessible to everyone. If the world of AI affects your daily life, this show is for you. From the practitioner wanting to keep up with the latest tools and trends. Spacey is really a library that lets you put together a whole NLP pipeline of the different things you might want to do um, and extract from your text. You know, you're not just interested in predicting one thing. You might want to read in your text. You want to find the individual sentences. You want to find out which concepts are mentioned in the text, like which person names, organizations, dates. And then you also maybe want to predict something about like what's in the text. To the AI curious, trying to understand the concepts at play and their implications on our lives. Would you rather be spending your time improving your blue score by 0.1 on French to English? Or would you rather have a breakthrough on kind of that under-resourced language that, by the way, has 350 million people using it in underprivileged areas around the world? Here's your expert hosts. My name is Chris Benson. I am a principal AI strategist at Lockheed Martin. And with me, as always, is Daniel Whitenack, a data scientist with SIL International. Hey, how's it going today, Daniel? Please listen to a recent episode and subscribe today. We'd love to have you as a listener. All right, kids. So I think we have some healthy constraints to help us get through brainstorming solutions for this last segment, because this is a giant topic and we could talk about it for hours. However, we don't have hours, so the constraint is how do we come up with solutions that would have potentially helped us avoid the situation that happened with Maroc's packages? You know, he released something intentionally like malicious. It wasn't kind of like a secret thing, right? Things started showing up in your terminal or whatever. So in some ways, this was like it's an easy to find issue. However, it doesn't mean like just because it's easy to find, like doesn't mean that you know, we, we couldn't have mitigated it entirely in terms of like even including it into our, our updated application versions. So with that said, for us and Toby and Chris, solutions, folks, how could we avoid this? I guess I'll just start by saying what I think 
wouldn't have helped that often people will bring up in these discussions because I think it's just helpful to take them off the table. Sure. Yeah. I will start with by signing is a thing people often talk about. So they propose, let's have every maintainer sign their packages so that we know that the code is not, has not been changed by NPM or by any intermediary between the publisher's computer and the, the kind of final place where it runs. Mm -hmm. And it's not a bad idea. We should probably do that. A lot of other um, package managers have that feature. You know, Apt, for example, in Linux has package signing. Mm -hmm. But it would not have helped at all in this particular incident. The person here we were worried about, the person who kind of inserted the malware into the package was themselves the maintainer. So they would have just simply signed the malware and uh, we would all be running it on our machines and nobody would know the better. So mm. it's a nice idea. Uh, fortunately, it doesn't help at all with this incident. The second one I want to bring up is 2FA. It's not a requirement to have 2FA or two-factor authentication on your NPM account. And a lot of people want that to become like a requirement, uh, you know, and, and maybe it should be. But again, in this particular incident, it would not have helped because the person we're worried about is the maintainer of the package and they have their own 2FA device with them. And so they would have been able to use that to publish malware. So again, 2FA, not the solution in this situation. Mm -hmm. I think possible solutions. One is like read every single line of code that you allow to run in your project. Audit every single line of code. <laughs> How sustainable is that? So we should give everything a sustainability score. This is like a new thing that I, this is a new rule. So <laughs> what were sustainability or feasibility score? Maybe, I don't know, you know? <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's no. the most obvious. That's like the br brute force. <laughs> this is what you're supposed to do. For certain projects uh, like uh, cryptocurrency projects and for big companies like Google that have effectively unlimited resources, mm. this is actually not a crazy idea. So Google will actually have, have their open source security team fully audit a package and then they check it into their internal version control system and they treat it as their own code. And so you know, that is actually a solution for the most security critical projects and for companies that have effectively unlimited resources. Obviously, yeah, the sustainability of, or the practicality of this approach for like a typical startup or you know even a normal medium-sized large size company uh, is pretty low because they don't have the skills probably to understand all this code and the time and all that. They may be able to Piggyback. buy that service from somebody who wants to provide it like a curator of some, mm -hmm. an audited version of the registry. Mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I'm sure that would sell pretty well. Mm -hmm. There was an attempt uh, by a node source to do that. But that's a big liability too, isn't it? You're taking on a lot of liability doing that though. Like, cause I don't want to guarantee somebody that this is safe, I swear, but I forgot that this, oh, I forgot about automatic semicolon insertion and like, oh, sorry, <laughs> like... I guess this code is dangerous, kids, you know? NodeSource tried that and... and yeah, so what happened with NodeSource? They had a thing called uh, certified modules that they were mm. providing for a while, but to be honest, I don't know how it worked and I don't think it was particularly widely adopted, mm. but I, I don't know the reasons for that. That would be kind of interesting to find out. There have been ideas, at least people thrown around about like, why don't we just all... Um, pick a trusted subset of NPM and just say like, everyone should just use these trusted packages. But it's every version of that package. Yeah. It's not just the package, right? That's a lot of work and who's going to do that work and who's going to pay for that work. Yeah. So I, I also don't think that's very sustainable. Yeah. And, and as Chris was mentioning, I mean, uh, you've audited the package once. Wonderful. I mean, I don't know 
how your life is around like maintaining open source softwares. But like, I just get pinged all the time because like there's a dependency that I have to update because there's like a security vulner- vulnerability somewhere that probably doesn't really affect my project because I'm just using a bit of it, but I don't know. <laughs> so like that's the other side of the coin, right? Which is if we, you know, we have to audit every change and we have to audit all of these changes like just in time because we actually want to pull those patches in because if not, we might be risking something else. Yeah. The thing that's so interesting about these Dependabot pull requests or whatever bot service you're using to give you these pull requests. Renovate, Dependabot. Yeah, there's so many of them. Yeah, Renovate is definitely my favorite, by the way, like shameless plug, but yeah. <laughs> the thing that's so interesting about them, though, in my in my opinion, is that they help you keep your project up to date and avoid known vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. Known vulnerabilities are vulnerabilities where some security researcher has found a problem mm-hmm. in a package and made a report and mm-hmm. a CVE has been issued, which is like a, a you know, an official report with uh, the National Vulnerability Database. And then now Dependabot can warn you that, hey, you should update because uh, it resolves this issue. But what's so interesting about it is like if you, if you just install Dependabot and you start just getting all these pull requests, I don't know about you all, but in my experience, I end up getting like five or 10 of them per day. And they're so overwhelming. And I basically just read the change log and I say, does this seem fine? Did the test pass? Okay, fine. Click merge, right? Because mm-hmm. I just, there's too many and you can't, you're not actually reviewing the contents of the changes. So what ends up happening is you have this unfortunate trade-off where on the one hand, like if you keep up to date, you're going to be safe from known vulnerabilities. But the more you do that, right, the more up to date you keep, yourself, the more you're running code that has potentially only been published for like a day or two on NPM. Like you're, you're updating to the thing that like that Merrick updated yesterday, right? You're clicking merge on that PR because you're trying to keep up to date. And so now you're actually running code that no eyeballs have looked at. And so it's actually the case that some organizations choose to intentionally run, like to keep all their dependencies like six months out of date with the exception of security um, fixes, just to avoid this problem of supply chain attacks that come in from from code that somebody published yesterday or a week ago that hasn't been caught yet. And so it's this really unfortunate trade-off. It's like, what are you more afraid of? Are you more afraid of supply chain, like malware getting inserted by random bad actors, or are you more afraid of known vulnerabilities and you have to choose your poison? Right. Mm -hmm. The second problem for me, which is something you see a lot on the web, is just like, uh, you know, fatigue around just approving stuff. Right, you just click approve. I mean, it just got everyone in the habit of like. Yeah, nobody wants to be the billy goat that's standing in the way of progress either, right? There's also some social pressure to just keep it moving, like you know what I mean? Right. That's a real thing. So the reason why I like Renovate is because it's highly configurable. So you can set your thresholds, you can batch, you can configure the bejesus out of it. But that being said, to your point about this like six month delay to update, I personally feel like this is kind of like a, uh, a way of doing some risk tolerance management, right? So, hey, I want to make sure that this thing has been adopted by other people and they've had no issues and those people have moved on to the next thing and before like I take this on, right? So it's some interesting social dynamics going on there. And I do think like there could be some, I, I think for me anyway, there's there's room for improving the metadata around how we expose those community adoption statistics so that folks can actually maybe actually configure their risk tolerance for like when to auto upgrade and when to not, right? So that would be like a nice thing I think to have also, to be honest. If a maintainer has their package and and they have their own kind of Mm -hmm. policy around, okay, this is how often we're going to pull in these security updates or, or what have you. That might not align with the consumers of that package and, and what they expect and need. 
as well, which is... Uh, then you have people in the issue tracker complaining about the why haven't you published an upgrade for this yeah some medium severity fix and some CLI thing yeah anyway don't get me started on this please <laughs> I totally get it I mean like the time so there's two interesting factors here one is like the time machine aspect of dependency trees, right? Our packages are literally like there's time machines and they're snowflake time machines, depending on your stack and your peer dependencies and blah, 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 blah. I mean, like it can get crazy, but also quite frankly, for me, like, I think we have a too much of a bias for like the latest and greatest software. Like I I'm very conservative with my teams. Like I like being a major, major version behind on major projects that have like a pretty heavy, like peer dependency ecosystem. Like for example, like if I have a react project, like I, don't like being on the latest, latest version of React because if I'm one version behind, it's usually safe in terms of everything else in the ecosystem, like more or less supporting it, right? Versus like upgrading right away and then like, oh, this bundler broke. Oh, this plugin doesn't have a thing for it yet, you know? We always try to push, I think like our bias towards like pushing new and being like very future oriented. Like we all try to adopt like the bleeding edge, and I, I don't understand why. Like, why do we all feel the need to be on the bleeding edge? Bleeding edge is not for everyone, and I don't get that. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you can share some insights, Toby. It does go back to this tension, though, because again, like, either you're sort of like running like the latest patches, and so you're safe against known vulnerabilities, or you're not, right? Security patches can be patched in. Let's say I have like three major versions of a project right now that I'm supporting in production. If I discover a security vulnerability that affects all of them, I can patch. Well, yes. I can patch all those versions, right? Not every maintainer does that, though. Of course, yes. But I, but what I'm trying to say, again, to discuss, like, we're talking in an ideal world here, right? Like, that is something that can be done. And that could be a, a hygiene or a practice that we push for that doesn't have to fall on the maintainer like somebody else like rando ml could submit patches to fix older versions right like we don't have to put that responsibility on the maintainer either like this just goes back to the whole sustainability thing like do we feel like we have an adequate number of people even contributing to open source considering how many people use it and of course there's company and financial and lots of access issues that are in the way as well of that but NPM doesn't make it very easy to start using like a, a fork of a package, right? Mm. Yeah, it's a lot of overhead to fork a package, to publish it as another name, and then to help people find it. So even if you did fix the fix the security issues and like if you know if someone in the community wanted to fix security issues in an older major version, it's not easy to help people find it. I personally think that the happy solution here is to lean on tools to help us identify when packages do dangerous things. Because if you look at the supply chain attacks that have happened, like this Merrick one, and then the you know the other ones I mentioned earlier, like UA Parser JS and Koa and RC, the way that the packages were modified is like so obvious to anyone who even looked at the code that something really nefarious has just happened. We should have computers help us do this. I mean, computers are really good at noticing certain changes, very you know, very deterministic changes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So like in those examples, all of those packages added install scripts, which means that when you go to install the NPM package, it's going to actually execute code immediately on your computer. Mm -hmm. And I don't have data on this, but my intuition is that the number of times that a package that's really popular, that's been out for many, many years already, suddenly decides that it needs an install script is 
the legit number of legitimate times that's happened is probably zero, or maybe it's a very small number that I could have hold on one hand, right? And so yeah. when that happened, it, it to me, the tooling should have told all of us as users of this software that sure, this the, the maintainer's claiming this is a patch version, but really this change is so severe, it's so um, disruptive that it ought to be treated as a major version change. And so all of our tooling should have like told us, hey, this, this package now has an install script. Hey, this package now talks to the network, right? Hey, this package now downloads an exe file and runs it on your computer. Yeah, this, hey, this package now has like 17 new methods that talk to file system, you know? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, suddenly all of a sudden very chatty with your, <laughs> with your local directories. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm actually working on a thing that does what I just said, so I'm kind of biased. I'm promoting my preferred solution, but I do think that we need something like this because we can't review all the code by hand. We certainly can't just close our eyes and hope for the best and just run this code and hope for the best. And I think a middle ground is, is really nice where you just, you use some tooling, some static analysis tooling to kind of tell you what does it look like this package is doing. And when it, when you notice a really drastic change in behavior that indicates that the maintainer may have gone rogue or a new maintainer may have actually been a malicious actor and not just a normal person, mm. that we can use those signals to alert people before they update to those dangerous versions. Yeah. That's, I think, where we need to go because I don't think a solution is to have everybody read every line of code or, or to... Um, mm -hmm. People are not going to do that. Right. And I think there's another thing that we have to be wary of, right? It's one of the huge value of having open source and uh, being part of the open source ecosystem is to be pushing changes upstream, right? If to run everything safely, everyone has essentially to have their own sort of like local patched versions of everything this is actually going back in time like a lot and it's, it comes with lots of other issues unpatched software is doing a lot of damage yeah this is not a thing where we can say oh let's just back out of this thing the reason why we're, we're trying to keep things updated is to avoid unpatched software right you had this really good point earlier which is we can't just shift left and move all of that to the maintainers to do right i agree with this yeah however if we don't do that, it either means that we can have tooling in the middle that's really good or that we all of us do that separately on our end. Hmm. So I actually spoke about this in a talk about the priority of constituencies. That's a concept that comes out of like the web standardization mm -hmm. and that essentially says that because if you're writing a spec, you're impacting all of the people actually developing the, the browsers who are themselves impacting all of the people developing apps who are themselves impacting users, mm -hmm. you have a much higher responsibility. And it's normal to sort of like shift the work towards you because one hour of your time is going to save a thousand hours of browser uh, implementer time and, you know, millions of hours of the, et cetera, right? Right, right, right. And so we don't have a system like this for open source, and we probably should. Mm -hmm. A maintainer fixing a problem solves a problem for literally everyone that's downstream of, of them, right? Mm -hmm. So that's something that's really valuable. However, the problem is in that priority of constituencies, mm -hmm. when you have players that are high up that dependency, like a spec editor or an open source maintainer, they have to be supported by the folks that are below. So essentially, you have to have a flow of resources going up to sort of deal with the fact that they have, they're having a lot of work to do because it makes more sense for that work to happen left, to be shifted left, right? You can't just ask people to take on more work but then not support them. 
Toby, when I first uh, heard of this, like Google was starting to push this S-bomb or, or I think it was, or, or some sort of, it had some sort of initiative where they want all these open source projects to adopt these standards, or maybe it was Microsoft. I don't remember who came up with this stuff, but I was like, oh, great. Now it's a huge company, you know, it's a trillion dollar company or whatever that wants me to do more work for free. Right. Right. That doesn't work. Oh, like, oh my God, forget that. Like, I don't even, honestly, I was trying to avoid this part because this is such a huge topic. Like, this is like going to set me off on a giant tangent, but I will say this very, very quickly. The fact that like folks at TypeScript, like God bless them, right? Whatever. They made a patch into Babel that was so huge because like for anybody listening who uses TypeScript and Node and JavaScript, I just want to say that like um, highly recommend using the Babel parser for TypeScript because really like you want to use TypeScript compiler to handle types and you want to use the Babel TypeScript plugin to really manage all your transpiling because you want to really leverage Babel is a much better transpiler than TypeScript. So just for what it's worth. And so the ecosystem, like folks have started to really widely acknowledge this and Microsoft is like, yeah, we really, you know, should just start contributing to the Babel uh, plugin. They created this giant patch that just created so much work for um, the Babel maintainers. And like, that's not cool. What is this? Like people like, you know, working full time are like making so much work for people uh, working on a community run project that's extremely critical to our ecosystem without making formal time to like contribute a butt ton of money as well or like resources or whatever to help. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, that's just an example of like that pushing it down in a way that's not conducive or productive and then quite frankly, like harmful and contributing to maintainer burnout, right? Like one thing, yeah, I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand is, oh, well, I sent a PR to this project. Am I not helping? Right. And in some cases, no, you're making more work. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and there's this really weird incentive in the open source ecosystem right now. Well, there is, you know, a, a number of maintainers that are trying to make both ends meet by getting contributions and sponsorship. Right. But what sells a sponsorship is actually a new feature. You have this completely wild situation where you're looking for money to maintain a project and in order to have money in, you have to create more features or build new things. So, you know, before you had N features to maintain and no money, right? And now you have N plus one features to maintain and you still don't have money to maintain those. <laughs> it's literally not sustainable. Right, right. Literally. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. So with that said, we could talk about this forever. Toby, I'm going to give you last word. What's an organizational solution that folks can adopt today if I was like, Hey, JavaScript party listener. Hey, changelog listener. Adopt this one thing today in your organizations to make it easier for the phenomenal maintainers that give us so much of their time and energy to like make the internet a better place. So what's one thing, Toby? No pressure. The only way that I can actually answer was one thing. <laughs> this is a trap. I knew we were doomed to like. It's, it's going to get worse. You can't say the word one with Toby and like one. <laughs> no, no, I will. Okay. I will, but it's a lot more burdensome okay. than if it was multiple things. Okay, we can change it to multiple things if that's easier. The only thing that will change this situation mm -hmm. is a mindset shift. Mm-hmm. Literally, because what we have is a systemic problem of an ecosystem that we all rely on 
and need to function in a different way. Mm-hmm. And we have to address the systemic issues behind that. Mm-hmm. And if we don't, we can sort of continue patching our way through. That's fine. It's going to be fine for a little while, and then it's going to get a little worse, and then it's mm-hmm. going to get a little more worse. Mm-hmm. And there's some point, like in the really close future, where large organizations will effectively be duplicating all of their rendering everything and having the funds to do that, and small organizations won't. And we're going to get even more security issues that are going to affect people more. We're seeing this in Switzerland now. Like so many small uh, state-level organizations with like private data about citizens, who their spouses, their children, their bank accounts, their, like how much money they make, where they're working, etc. Like their address. is it's like on the dark net, there's not one day where this doesn't happen. Why? Because we have really small organizations relying on software that they don't understand. And because there is no sort of like upstream sense of making sure that the stuff is sustainable and safe. If we don't have a mindset shift, I am not like in a positive mood about this whole thing. Mm. However, I do believe that a mindset shift hasn't ever been that close as it is today. Mm -hmm. People are understanding the relationship between security and sustainability, Mm -hmm. right? And that's key. That's super important. For me, there's like three specific things that we need to do to sort of like go forward with this. The first one is organizations that are relying on open source software, i.e. everyone that is using uh, software, right? If you're building software, you're building on top of open source. There's no other way at this point, right? I mean, except like super, super specific circumstances. But those folks need to understand that they're not buying that software from somewhere, right? They're part of a broader ecosystem that they have to collaborate. (laughs) I'm just laughing because I just realized this was one thing. But yes, yes, I agree. It's true. Yes to everything, Toby. It's absolutely true. Honestly, like the topic I was really trying to avoid was like, what does it mean for us to like have all these big companies enter open source and for us to lose our, it's like muscles, you know, like, you know how when you don't work out, For a while, you're like, what's going on with my muscles? It's like, oh, they're atrophying because you don't use them, right? So I'm wondering if we're starting to atrophy our muscles around community-driven open source because I'm seeing more and more people in the JavaScript community adopt packages that are like maintained and created by these large companies. And like you said, at any point, a company can just close their source or do something else that's private and you know for them in terms of how they maintain stuff right and oh maybe it's a competitive edge for them oh like oh maybe their biggest competitor is using a package of theirs and they change the licensing or I wasn't even going there yeah yeah I wasn't even going there well no you weren't going there but I mean that's one of the things that keeps me up at night and like it's concerning to me because you know I see projects like even just again to sorry to pick on Microsoft here but they're an easy target like Rush and Lerna, right? Like that's like another good example of like community versus, you know, corporate driven. And like, I just don't want us to lose that muscle of having good practices that are community run and universally available because we can't have corporations set boundaries for us in open source. And I'm just worried about that. You know, I really am like, I don't know if you are, Chris, you're nodding. So is this an invalid fear? <laughs> like, no, I, I don't think so. No. I think it's valid. No, absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of these companies have shown us who they are, really. I mean. Yeah. They're corporations. They're not nonprofits. 
I mean, just saying, like, right. I am not particularly upset when I see a corporation <laughs> doing what's good for their bottom line. I mean, this right. is literally their job. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, sure, it might impact their brand, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, like, we have to sort of grow up to that. Like, this is the reality is, you know, that's the reality. Right. Well, you know, so like I said, we um, officially, like, had lots of tangents, but I think they were productive and necessary. This is an important topic. So we appreciate you hopefully enjoying this ride with us. And I just remember, I think Toby's one thing was like a mindset shift. So, so Toby, where can folks learn more about what you do and find you on the internet? On this topic, I think like the easiest is just to follow me on Twitter. I'm just at Toby. Uh, that's my Twitter handle. Oh, wait, it's not at old man shakes of fist at cloud. I thought that was your... I should probably redirect. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's great. And um, and then do you have any projects or any talks or anything that you want to highlight for folks? Well, I mean, I'm going to be talking a lot about this in the upcoming month because uh, I think it's an important topic. And I think the community and the, our industry is actually ready to, to listen to this. So there's uh, clearly going to be more on this topic. And, you know, we didn't look at all of them. I mean, there's lots of areas that we could have talked about that we haven't. So there's going to be plenty of opportunity to actually have those conversations in the upcoming month. Excellent. Absolutely. All right. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you for being wonderful co-guests, co-panelists for us and Chris. And we will talk to everyone next week. Take care, everyone. Bye. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye for now. All right. That is our show. Thank you for listening. What do you think? Let us know in the comments. Yes, you can comment on every JS Party episode on changelog.com. There's a direct link to the comment thread for this episode at the top of your show notes. If you're digging JS Party, do us a solid by recommending the show to a friend. We'd love to have them listening along. And hey, it'll give you one more thing to talk about next time you see each other. JS Party is produced by me, Jared Santo, with Breakmaster Cylinder Beats in the mix. Thanks again to our partners at Fastly for delivering this episode super fast all around the world. Next up on the pod, Ryan Carniato joins the show, and he's bringing his SolidJS project with him. Amelia, Nick, and I have plenty of questions for him. How did it get so fast? What makes it different than React? Does it play nice with Svelte? Is it the next big thing? Stay tuned to find out. It'll be ready for you next week. Who accused me of co-founding NPM?